This episode was recorded on the traditional lands of the Gadigal and Mongol people of the Eora Nation and the Darug people of the Dark Nation. We acknowledge that sovereignty of these lands was never ceded and pay our respects to elders past and present. Welcome to Trope Watchers, the show about pop culture and why it matters. I'm Scott. And I'm Mia, and we're cultures fellows who are searching for femmes in the media. We are joined today by special guest Catherine Junta. Catherine is a PhD candidate at the University of Sydney. Catherine, tell us a little bit more about yourself. Hi, Scott and Mia. Thanks for having me. Um, so I'm a... As Scott said, PhD researcher at the University of Sydney in the anthropology department there. And my research focuses on gender, specifically um, being feminine or femme in Sydney's LGBTIA plus and queer social scenes. I'm looking at femininity in that context, how it's enacted, understood, produced. And as an anthropologist, the way that I do that is through spending time with people. So I do what we call participant observation field work. The other interesting thing about my work is that I'm doing what anthropologists call ethnography at home or insider ethnography insofar as I'm also a member of the group that I study. So I myself am a Sydney resident who identifies as a queer femme. All right. So Catherine, how would you define the term femme? (sighs) I mean, wow, I wish I could give you like a one sentence sort of punchy thing. Um, Ultimately, femme is a self-identified term. um, And I think that one of the things that I'm unraveling as I sort of wrap up my fieldwork and begin to analyze and think about what the thesis is actually going to be is um, the difference between sort of how to politically and personally think about femme and how to think about it academically and and analytically. Uh, So in the field or amongst the people that I work with, my participants, um, it's broadly understood that femme is something self-identified. So whether whether you look a certain way or not, if you have an identity claim as femme, by and large you're accepted as femme. That said, um, that's not particularly useful for um, illuminating what this really dense term means for people who may have absolutely no context, which is why I often like to think about uh, the history of the term and where it sort of came from. And one of my favourite or preferred ways of going into it is through the really wonderful... um, History and anthropology book by Kennedy and Davis called Boots of Leather, Slippers of Gold. And that actually follows butch femme communities in the States from the 30s up till, I think, either just before or just, uh, no, it's up to like the 50s. It does kind of uh, convey this experience of femme as a feminine lesbian, someone who might look like a convent like might meet the conventions of what a woman ought to look like for that time and place uh and and in this work and for a lot of people in the past and now intimately connected with an attraction to and relationships with butchers which we could sort of gloss as 
masculine women. Um, that's not my field, but I imagine folks who, for whom it is would find that a gross oversimplification. But for the purposes of today, um, that'll work, I think. And the, these butch femme communities have historically been really entrenched in actually working class communities and bar culture and also African-American communities or African-American lesbians, I suppose, even though, uh, and, and it's quite interesting for me now to think about how in Sydney, the vast majority of my participants would be sort of racialized white. Coming back to the history, um, particularly in relation to my field, uh, you've got to really look to the history of lesbians and queer women and LGBTIA plus people in Sydney. And one of the richest sources of that is Rebecca Jennings' Unnamed Desires, A Sydney Lesbian History. In that book, um, Jennings kind of points out that in contrast to what we know from Kennedy and Davis's work in the US, in Australia, butch femme didn't really become a thing until the sort of 60s. So in a lot of ways, yeah, the, the lesbian and queer woman experience was really, really different because we were here in Australia, in Sydney. The scene was very mixed. Um, depending on who you talk to, Dawn O'Donnell's bar, Ruby Red's, was a butch femme bar, which was, again, depending on who you talk to, kind of known for maybe being a bit rough, like butchers having lots of fights and things like that. Yeah, and I can't emphasise enough that I've heard wildly different things about this time from different people so I do not pretend to present a history of that time or place um because everyone you talk to I've had people say that wasn't a butch femme bar and people being like I tried to go in and I didn't fit because I wasn't butch or femme so uh and this is kind of what we what we're going off in in this scene because it's a more recent history and because Femmes are consistently underrepresented in retellings, um, maybe because we're, we've traditionally been seen as theoretically less exciting, you know, like, oh, there's no obvious transgression, so why bother? Or, or because um, femmes have also been seen as sort of unreliable lesbians, like, oh, you know, they look straight, they'll go back to a man at any time, all that sort of stuff. I think that... The other, the other thing that I do want to bring up when I'm talking about kind of grappling with how to understand femme would be that uh, for me it's really not tied to a particular gender. So I've been using terms like queer woman and lesbian um, mostly to talk about the past because that's mostly how these documents refer to the people that we're talking about. But in, I, in my study, I very deliberately demarcate uh, the people that I'm interested in as anyone who doesn't identify as a man. And that's partially because, you know, as an anthropologist, methodologically, we it's not really best practice to kind of bring your own categories to a field. So if I was to rock up in Papua New Guinea and only look at men and women, I would miss the sort of various other genders that exist in that space and so there's that but the other reason is that as someone who's a part of this community um, I'm fully aware that femmes 
uh, exist in all genders, including men, although I've chosen not to look at them. But um, there are a number of non-binary people in my study and femme absolutely transcends sort of womanhood and femaleness. Okay, so in today's episode, we will be discussing the L word, Carol, and how to get away with murder. So if you haven't watched these and intend to, be wary of impending spoilers. So let's start with the L word. The L word is possibly the most famous show centered on the experiences of queer women, and it also receives a fair amount of criticism for being pretty homogenous in its representations. Catherine, how do you see femininity and femmes presented in the L word? I mean, do I see femininity and femmes presented in the L word? Uh, I do. Before I jump into that, I wanted to touch on um, maybe how we're using queer for this purposes of this discussion, because I think another really interesting question is, do we see queer women in the L word or do we see lesbian and bisexual women in the L word? And um, a lot of us use queer, uh, again, a lot of people who are not straight use queer in many different ways. And particularly if you're an academic, you, again, maybe using it in a political way and an analytical way. Um, and one of the interesting things that I've been thinking about in terms of my field is actually how queer functions in these social circles. And often my kind of early thoughts on that would be that queer really functions as a politics and an orientation towards gender and sexuality is quite fluid. In contrast to how, how we would see it used in more mainstream public discourse as a kind of umbrella term for lesbian, lesbian gay, bisexual, trans um, usually those people don't include intersex and asexual, although they should. Yeah, so maybe I guess in here are we talking about queer as not straight? Yeah, so I definitely switch between uh, the use of the word queer, depending on who I'm talking to as well. Like I, in my head, and this is certainly not a universal thing, but this is just how I kind of feel. Uh, there's like capital Q queer and like lowercase Q queer mm. and like capital Q queer is very much talking to that fluidity. And like when we think about queer scenes that are very political um, and then like lowercase Q queer is like this umbrella term so that I'm not inadvertently excluding people, although I am inherently excluding people who don't feel like they identify as queer and particularly people who've grown up where queer was an insult. So it is there is no single term that hasn't been used in a really awful way. And there are every single term for some person is going to have this kind of like traumatic history associated with it. Um, but broadly speaking, unless I know that it has a particularly negative connotation for someone, I tend to think of like lowercase queer as the umbrella term. And for the purpose, I think of this episode, I'll probably be using it in that way. Mm. Um, if I really want to make a point of being like, no, 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 it's like political queer, I'll, <laughs> I'll signal that. But uh, again, just in terms of, because even, you know, in the shows we're talking about it, if it's a TV series, sexuality is going to change yep. <laughs> as we go yep. along. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, saying one thing, if we're saying, you know, this person is a lesbian or this person is bisexual, or this person's straight, that might not be what they are in a few seasons time. Whereas if they're queer, it's like, okay, like that they are, you know, not a heterosexual cis person, <laughs> essentially. Mm. Mm. Yeah, cool. Thank you for indulging me in that. Uh, one of the 
joys I'm sure you'll find of speaking to me at this point in my research is that I'm just, well, I'm figuring this out. So let's talk about it. (laughs) (laughs) And um, the L word is definitely, um, it's been interesting going back to it in this post fieldwork stage and reflecting on these sorts of things um, because, you know, I, I was never hyper conscious of looking for femmes um, in interactions with it I'd had prior. And coming back to the question, which is how do I see femininity and femmes presented in the L word? I guess that I could probably separate how I see femininity and how I see femmes. So it seems to me that uh, if femmes explicitly mentioned, it's sort of tied to butch and it's tied to old school. So there's a couple, like I'm thinking season one, there's a couple scenes where they're in a bar and someone will be like, oh, this is so old school butch femme, you know, or um, when uh, Ivan is kind of courting Kit. uh, So Ivan being... We're initially introduced to Ivan as a drag king, but they actually seem to be, and I believe probably unintentionally, um, quite a decent reflection of some of the like masculine of center, non-binary people that are in my community. It's always unintentional. (laughs) Right? And and we absolutely see that um, later in, in the series when a trans character actually is introduced and it's just not done well in my personal opinion (laughs) so femme seems to be yeah this kind of throwback thing of like oh that was how it was done uh and it's not how we do now Uh, which which is interesting because and I, oh, I really, mm, I want to say that I dislike the term lipstick lesbian, but I also don't want to um, pass judgment on anyone who feels like that term really fits for them. But, you know, we could talk about often the L word is kind of brought up with that phrase because we've got these very like feminine women. I mean, do they look like they could be straight? It's hard to tell because this was the early noughties and this is the interesting thing when we think about femininity and the L word is that they I would say do at least they have a gender non-conforming character in Shane and you know yeah Shane the character of Shane cops a lot of criticism for like this like soft butch kind of oh please like must we sort of (laughs) pretend like this is the representation of Butch? Um, But yeah, we don't really see the same critiques about femme. There aren't, you know, in, in various recaps floating around the internet and whatnot, I've never really noticed anyone being like, hey, where are the femmes? And often that might be because for some people, femme is looking like a conventionally feminine woman in which case they might feel really represented by the characters on the l word one thing that i wonder about the l word is if the way that the characters presented as conventionally feminine isn't a little bit of assimilation politics if if we're not kind of seeing this like 
palatable lesbian presented to the wider world that is really like deeply reminiscent of like, you know, porn fantasies of what lesbian sex is and what lesbians look like. Uh, and that's also echoed in some of the narrative arcs of the show. Um, again, Bet and Tina are a really good example here because they are just like you, except we're both girls because we want a family too. Um, which watching today can be quite frustrating, particularly, uh, and again, I'm always going to bring it back to uh, Sydney and the sort of small um, field study that I'm doing. But in, in this moment when we've just had marriage equality pass and things like that, there's a lot of people in the kind of, as Mia might say, capital Q community who are really sick of this, like, oh, we're not like this, this assimilationist politics that's been going on these past sort of six, nine months. However, when we remember when the L word was made and when the L word was put out into the world, it was really revolutionary for its time. And I mean, still, we're not really seeing shows that are solely about non-straight social circles. Uh, So it continues to be one of the few shows that is doing that. Um, And in that sense, you can kind of see a bit of that like strategic essentialism, strategic kind of, you know, yeah, we'll make you a bit palatable, but also show you that we're humans as well. So I can't, I can't, completely fault the show for the way that gender is represented in that sense. However, it is a really interesting way of thinking about the differences between not only femme and femininity, but queer femininity, lesbian femininity, and maybe straight femininity. And I'm hesitant to draw strong boundaries between each of those ideas because we're human beings and gender is just so complex and everywhere all the time. And we change it, you know, day to day, context to context. And, you know, you can never really talk about it and encompass everyone's experiences. However, there is definitely something about femininity done for people who are not men that is different. And on a fictional TV show like The L Word, there is potentially a lot of space to actually draw that out um, in a way that really could have done a lot for representing the really varied and dynamic forms of femininity that exist beyond quote-unquote straight femininity It is, of course, really important uh, and one of my and many other people's critiques of a lot of the literature on femme and queer femininity is that we often fall into the trap of then saying that uh, it's usually as women in this case, women who enact a a quote unquote straight femininity are doing so under sort of a false consciousness, whereas us queers, we're so enlightened (laughs) and progressive and radical and that's not at all fair or reflective of the lived experience that I've seen in my research. The other point that I wanted to make about femininity in the L word is actually about um, sexuality. And I think I'll talk a bit more about this 
um, when we get to how to get away with murder. But uh, people like Jenny and Alice um, are both characters who sleep with men. Alice identifies as a bisexual, which is kind of amazing because <laughs> we don't uh, we don't get to hear the word bisexual often in in television. Uh, and so in I think it's the first episode. Yeah, she says she's bisexual and she gets a little bit of shit from Dana from it about it and she blows it off like she holds strong and this is who I am and that's amazing uh and watching it from through a sort of capital Q queer lens that's also really exciting because the way that I see sexuality in my field is this like deeply fluid thing where it's not total like you're definitely not having to justify the fact that you might have dated a guy or someone who's not a woman to be included as a queer um, non-man in in a lot of circles. There are still some that would, absolutely. But for the most part, fluidity is more accepted. But what the L word brings out for me is that this, this kind of tendency whereby if we're seeing a femme or feminine character who also has romantic and sexual attraction to women or non-men, they're almost always also having sexual and romantic attraction to men. So this kind of underlying idea that femininity is something done for men uh, to attract men is kind of perpetuated when we continue to show characters that are feminine as initially, especially attracted to men. And yeah, I think that we can, we can talk a bit more about that in relation to um, Viola Davis's character and how to get away with murder. Samia, what are your thoughts on the L word? I hesitate to say this because I, I don't want to take anything away from the people who get stuff out of this, particularly the people watching 2004 who are like, this is the first show that I've like, you know, been able to get something out of. So I'm certain there are so many people this was a really important show for. For me, I watch it and I feel like I'm watching. Originally, I felt like it was maybe for straight men, but I'm like, no, I actually think it's for straight women. Like, that's mm. what I feel like watching it. I feel like it's for women who... Um, want to kind of maybe explore their sexuality from the position of safety. And like, I am reminded so much of that first scene uh, of, you know, when Jenny realizes that her neighbors are gay and she's spying on them. And I'm like, yeah, this is what I feel like I am. I feel like I'm her spying on these people mm, and be mm. like, Ooh, what are these, you know, maybe I might want to try that. Like, yeah, I'm not sure yet. I'm just going to stay back and they can't see me and it's fine. Like that's what it feels like watching it. Yeah, so it doesn't it doesn't work for me personally. Um, I don't feel like I'm getting anything out of it. And then we get to the, you know, as you were saying, they are all so attractive. They're so thin. Even the ones that aren't white are pretty white. Like they, yeah. they've got, there's not diversity in this show. And I look at it and I'm like, these are not my friendship circles. Like even my exclusively queer friendship circles, this whole group of people are like one or two people from those circles. <laughs> A lot of the existing literature on femme, um, particularly the work of Ulrika Dahl uh, or the ethnographic work of Ulrika Dahl, we see again and again and again this uh, preoccupation with representation from that femmes themselves are vocalising 
And often this really similar story that actually is very similar to my own personally, which is not realize like it not realizing that you could be queer and femme or and feminine because we never really got to see that it was possible. Uh, there was this, a very this one image of what a lesbian looked like, and the L word probably did that for a lot of feminine women but for people who do femme which yeah as I've been kind of consistently talking around is is a bit different whether it's through excess or mixing elements of different gender presentations or through tensions and juxtapositions of styles and things like that is is different and I think that femmes watching the L word in 2004 might not have felt very validated. All right, so let's move on to how to get away with murder, and in particular, the character of Annalise Keating. Catherine, how does Annalise's femininity and queerness manifest throughout the show? One of the many interesting things about the character of Annalise Keating is that we actually don't find out that she's had a significant romantic and sexual relationship with a woman until season two. And I think that that really, really colours how I at least um, see that character because she's clearly very feminine um, and it's not until we find out that she is potentially, I mean, we never get to hear a label, but it's not until we find out that she's in some way, shape or form not straight that we might actually start applying that femme label to her. Uh, and, And... as I mentioned earlier, this is a really consistent issue in representations of femmes is that often we see these feminine women who are initially presented as straight and then it's only after the fact or later in the series that we discover that they've, they're not straight. Um, that said, I think that Annalise, the character of Annalise Keating shows a lot of features of femme that I see in Sydney. So people who identify with or as femme often display this kind of hyper excess of femininity um, and they'll often articulate it as, you know, doing it kind of up, flirting with the line of parody, like, you know, really high heels, really tight clothes, um, you know, a lot of very perfect makeup, um, which is, is tricky to translate into a TV show because that kind of excess is kind of normal on TV, but the people, and, and, and you know, cause everyone's kind of doing these full faces of makeup, um, or whatever. It's not as noticeable as excessive, but I'm thinking about, you know, people in my study who look like Viola Davis would look on set in their day-to-day lives. Um, so there's that real kind of excess. There's also, there's a whole power thing. There's, she's in control. She's a bit of a, um, she's a bit different. Like the way she runs her class, she's got special permission to kind of step outside the box. And, you know, there's a few times when the administration is trying to keep her in line and things like that at the university that this character teaches at. Um, and, and that is, again, a really, like, 
high femme thing of really being like very competent. You're kind of, uh, yeah, that's, that's a real element that I see. And in a lot of theorizing about femme identity and femme experience, that is often brought in to tension with this sort of sense of vulnerability or softness or openness or whatever we want to call it um, that might be more traditionally associated with straight femininity or mainstream femininity or heterosexual heteronormative femininity. Um, And we, we see that in the very first episode, you know, she's going from walking into this classroom and owning it and really um, in her power to sort of crying and asking the sort of, I guess we call Wes the main character, um, desperately to like keep a secret for her. And that tension, that contrast is, I think, a lot of what my participants intentionally and otherwise play with in presenting themselves and understanding themselves as femme. So in many, many ways, the character of Annalise Keating is a tremendous representation of a lot of the femme and queer femininity that I'm seeing in my study, except that we don't know it until (laughs) season two. So when I draw parallels between what I see in my field and this character of Annalise Keating, it's really important to keep in mind that I'm mostly talking about people who would be racialized as white. Whereas Annalise Keating is played by Viola Davis, who's an African-American woman and race and ethnicity are really, really important here. Partially because I think that, and I'm beginning to think more and more about as I'm entering into this analysis stage of my research, the ways in which we draw on archives of gender and understandings of gender that are really deeply tied to, um, you know, many parts of our background, but particularly ethnicity. So for instance, I have participants who are read as quite uh, masculine by their, for instance, South Asian families, but are read as quite feminine by Anglo and white people in their communities. Uh, So ethnicity and race are really, really important for when we're talking about femme and femininity. And in the case of How to Get Away with Murder and Annalise Keating, we can't ignore the fact that consistently in accounts of femme and femininity from queer women of colour and queer people of colour, they are every time bringing up this idea that white people expect them to be masculine, to be butch, to be toppy, um, as a side note, femme and top, not mutually exclusive, but um, often correlated with, you know, dominance, masculinity, all those kind of heteronormative ideas. So it's entirely possible that the Annalise Keating character's enactment of femininity might be tied to this need to really produce a femininity as a woman of colour that a white woman in her position might not need to because it softens, it might make, again, more palatable, might make less threatening. So it's not a simple comparison that I can make between my research and 
this character, but there is definitely interesting things to be said about Annalise Keating as a femme or certainly at least as feminine. The other thing that comes out of this discussion around race and ethnicity is that I I often wonder if Keating was white, if she would do the very popular kind of vintage femme that we are seeing a lot in femme literature and globally, maybe a bit more so in the 2000s. Um, But this kind of high femme, vintage femme, dressing up like sort of a 50s housewife, that sort of thing, because the vibe is really close in, in the way that she dresses and the way that she moves. And when we're talking about that excess, it's often a vintage femme or femininity that comes in there. And I want to kind of talk a bit about that because in Sydney and all over the world, there's a lot of controversy about this kind of vintage femme aesthetic um, and femmes of colour have really launched a, like a very um, grounded critique of the way that white women will often adopt these 50s, 40s uh, aesthetics as really ignoring the, I mean, trauma that they that femmes of colour associate with those time periods that white and Anglo femmes just may have much less of. And I know that in my field there are a lot of uh, participants who really enjoy vintage or vintage-adjacent aesthetics but are really, really wary of being seen to um, adopt the politics of the era with those aesthetics and and the reason that they're wary of that is because in social justice circles they've been critiqued for doing that uh i've recently come across an interesting sort of analysis of vintage actually in relation to steampunk um which i never thought (laughs) i would engage with but um that that kind of asks if we're not engaging with vintage in a way that reimagines possibilities that weren't available at the time um and I think that works for steampunk I think that works for queer vintage femme because or it could work for queer vintage femme when tension is brought in through like ubiquitous tattoos piercings um maybe you're wearing a 50s dress but you're wearing Doc Martens again contrast and tension trouble the kind of easy um association between a vintage aesthetic and a total ignorance of racial politics yeah that's a really interesting point about that kind of hesitance obviously to romanticize though that early 50s period with the vintage aesthetic because uh, it, it really is such a go-to form of expression for a lot of i mean a lot of the high firms i know I say a lot, like not a high percentage, but I know <laughs> many and they are all white. Like it, it's, and again, I don't mean that as a criticism, but I think definitely it's, it's something I hadn't really considered before. And I think it's an interesting point to bring up because I get what you mean in terms of the personality of Annalise Keating. I can see her doing that, but Annalise Keating, you know, the African-American lawyer, no, we're not too bad. Um, 
Yeah, but yeah, Annalise Kenny is such an interesting character, and I think the the scene that really kind of hit home to me, like, yeah, I'm interested in her. I will stick with this show for a long time because of her. Is the scene where she's, uh, as we find out, she's just realised that her husband's naked selfie is on this murdered girl's phone. Uh, but we don't know that yet. So she comes home. Uh, you see her take off her wig. I think this is the first time you know for sure she's wearing a wig. Mm. That's obviously not her natural hair, but you know you you don't necessarily get any like really overt um, signals that this is a wig wearing character. Because sometimes you know when you watch shows, you get the impression that you're supposed to think this is that person's natural hair. Like mm. the show just wants to pretend like, yep, this is what that person looks like naturally, and yeah. clearly not. But this is the first time it's like oh the show is aware that this is a wig good we can you know we can go forward and she takes off her makeup and you know we again we now see she clearly wears a lot of makeup because and this isn't you know specifically a a racialized thing like in all shows we're definitely supposed to be like oh yeah that is what that person looks like Mm -hmm. oh that person's only lightly wearing makeup when they're clearly heavily wearing makeup or oh, that person's gone all natural when, no, they're wearing foundation and eyeliner and all that other stuff. Um, So we see her removing all this stuff and it's this very kind of symbolic scene, but it is also clearly just part of her nighttime routine. She doesn't just take off things. She puts on moisturizer onto her neck. Um, And then there's this kind of, you know, really heavy resonance of, yeah, she was performing and she was in a relationship with a man and they were both kind of, they had this un you know, unspoken agreement that they will both perform their roles really well. And like, he fucked up, like he Mm. fucked up his role real bad. And so even though she would obviously do this every night, we're seeing it as the audience for the first time. And for the first time we're realizing like, no, she doesn't need to perform this very specific kind of femininity because like he's fucked up performing his very specific role as a husband by most likely sleeping with a woman who's now been murdered. (laughs) I, I couldn't agree more that that scene's incredibly powerful um, in part because it is so mundane um, and but at the same time so highly symbolic and it tells us a lot about, yeah, what the show is willing to acknowledge, what the show is willing to unpack. I One of the big things that I got out of it was actually about the labour of femininity. This kind of labor of femininity the work of drawing on eyebrows symmetrically my like (laughs) so difficult let alone winged eyeliner like that's a serious skill set um these skills and this this work this really physically tiring work that in many ways from a utilitarian perspective would be easier not to do these are often characterized particularly in kind of critiques of like post-feminism and critiques of like empowerment discourses around femininity which are you know valid and important critiques but often this kind of work gets implicitly characterized as superficial as frivolous as wasteful and and the work element the labor element is often removed and that actually doesn't do much in terms of helping us think about not only the experience of this labor, but why people might do it. The other really interesting thing about this scene for me is the way in which we're seeing the trappings of femininity removed. And often 
socially and academically, femininity is seen to exist in these things. It's seen to be about the clothes, about the hair, about the makeup. It's seen as a surface, an adornment. And all of these things are incredibly important in femininity, in enacting it, in understanding it, in experiencing it. But that's not only where it lies. And, you know, we do see Annalise Keating have this really like emotional engagement with her husband in that scene, but she's still her. She's still the character that she is. And as the series continues, there's a few more scenes where we see Annalise without makeup and without a wig. And by bringing that in, the show enables me at least to think about how femininity exists beyond all of those uh, external facing things, which is of course a really tricky area to get into because we don't want to sort of jump into the pool of gender essentialism. Um, But we also do need to acknowledge that a lot of people do feel and experience their gender as inherent. And again, it's a really interesting tension to explore and one that I think that scene in particular is is quite rich for for enabling that exploration. Yeah, and I think, you know, as we've already signaled in our conversation so far, but I, I you know, don't think it can be stated enough, is that she's not just performing femininity, but she's performing white femininity. Mm. She's uh and I saw this really great interview uh with uh Viola Davis uh on like Anderson Cooper's show and Oh my god, watching Edison Cooper like so nervously <laughs> approach this question about her hair was adorable. I'm like, I've, I've got you know many mixed feelings about Edison Cooper, but I'm like, oh, you are so worried about how this question's going to come out, but you know you got to ask it. Um, the, at the uh, the Olympics recently, when she did really well, I also saw people commenting about like her hair and stuff, and I just thought it really odd that people noticed this so much. Do, do you find it strange that people? comment on how you appear so much? No, because I'm an African-American woman and there is not enough time on the show to explain hair issues. (laughs) 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 No, that being said, I took off my hair, I took off my wig because um, I wanted to step into who I was. Hmm. And I felt like and listen, I love wigs. I do. I, I still will wear a wig every once in a while. Okay? I'm wearing a weave right now, so yeah. just so you know. <laughs> but for me, what I felt like was every time I put on a wig that I was apologizing for who I was, being a dark-skinned woman, of very curly hair, I felt like I was hiding it. And I felt like I was saying that, okay, my characters aren't very glamorous, but look at me, you know, see me, aren't I pretty? And I felt like I didn't want to do that anymore. And I felt that like the Oscars was a perfect time to do that. So I stepped into who I was. I think you're beautiful. I think you're... It actually reminds me of an episode of Brooklyn Nine-Nine where Holt and Terry have that conversation when Terry is uh, profiled mm-hmm. by a police officer for be- being, obviously, for being a black man in a, in a neighborhood. And, you know, he, he looks dodgy because he is a black man near a house at night. Um, and Holt has that conversation with him where it's like, well, I think you should. Originally, he suggests that maybe you shouldn't 
pursue this. You shouldn't go for it because you're going for something else at the moment and this is going to jeopardize your chances. And then he eventually says, actually, no, I changed my mind. I think you should go for it. Is this political action? And then at the end of the episode, we kind of get this suggestion that maybe it actually did have negative impacts. We don't know for sure. Mm. We never will know for sure. Um, but it it might have negatively impacted him. Now, that doesn't mean it was the wrong decision. Mm. And this kind of brings us back to Annalise is a lawyer mm. because Annalise is very political in many ways, mm. but she still performs white femininity in a very careful way. And at the end of the day, she is a top lawyer at, you know, this prestigious university. Not only does she she need to maintain this kind of hegemonic respectability to the university and her students, uh, but also to a judge and to a jury that would have all of these biases, whether or not they're aware of them or not. So, and you know, she is also the kind of lawyer who sometimes takes the less moral approach mm. in order to win. And I think this is an example yet again of her probably going against her own political ideas. Like I think Annalise as a person is the kind of person who would, you know, rock her natural hair mm. and really you know, not try and perform femininity in that way, except for the fact that she knows it puts her cases at risk and it knows it puts, you know, professional opportunities at risk. And like she walks that really tough line of performance where she needs to make sacrifices in one way or another and this is the way she's chosen to do it and uh then you've got Viola Davis who's chosen the other way and that's we could argue that potentially Viola Davis has a slightly easier but you know that's Mm. that's such a Mm. arbitrary thing to (laughs) say like you know she's still a working woman uh and working in industry where even with her skills looks are so important so she's still making an incredibly political decision. Hugely. And we are definitely in this moment with sort of celebrity culture where stands like that or like Alicia Keys not wearing makeup to an award ceremony, like they are somewhat celebrated, but also there's still that like big risk involved. Um, I think that, yeah, the idea of um, Keating performing this white femininity is actually like really strongly illustrated in the scene where she does remove her makeup because we see that her foundation is actually like a shade lighter than the skin underneath. And that could be simply a case of often makeup companies do not make foundation that matches skin tones that are not on the beige end of the spectrum but the fact of the matter is that it is a lighter shade I mean yeah intent is always an interesting thing to think about when we talk about these shows because whether the producers or the director intended for that to be the effect of that scene regardless we've gotten that from it it's also interesting to talk about Annalise Keating's femininity as a white one and I just want to bring in class to this which you sort of touched on Mia when we talk about her being at this top university and in the legal profession. Uh, it might be in the second series that her mother comes in and her mother makes all these digs at her for living in this big fancy house and you've changed your name and you like, oh, you're too good for clothes from the poor box and all this sort of stuff. So we actually – you know, in the second series, not only do we find out that Annalise is potentially queer, we find out that she's potentially working class. And 
it's it's interesting to think about the femininity she performs in that sense as well uh because yeah everywhere but particularly in the states law and university are really inaccessible professions and and um things to do for the vast majority of people uh and so there's a lot of performance involved in that as well and I guess that the main point I want to draw out is actually the interconnectedness of whiteness and upper-classness and femininity particularly uh particularly in relation to what I was sort of saying earlier about African-American femmes talking about being seen as masculine within queer and lesbian communities because femininity and gender more broadly um, really can't be separated or gender in the West more broadly really can't be separated from like very colonial um, discourses around the wild, untamed, uncivilized, hypersexualized, non-white people that are being colonized by Anglo white populations. And again, this is, you know, particularly relevant to my field in Sydney and Australia, where, you know, we're a settler colony um, settled by or violently colonized by English settlers, I suppose we'd say. So the deep interconnectedness and embeddedness of femininity as in really mainstream discourses as white, fragile, soft and protected, like not not working but being waited on, things like that. It's it's really it's really hard to disentangle. So when we invoke Annalise's femininity as white, there's a lot of class stuff coming through there as well. Okay, finally, let's look at Carol. This is a film that is set in early 1950s. So there's obviously the added complexity of Carol having to walk the line of ensuring that the general world around her doesn't learn that she's queer, especially with the custody of her daughter at stake. So additionally, in this time period, a woman of Carol's social standing Again, who wants to maintain access to a child would need to be pretty feminine. Catherine, what are your thoughts on Carol? Yeah, absolutely. I think what you said about the importance of her maintaining this motherly feminine presentation uh, is really, really brought to the front when we think about the plot line around her custody and it actually made me think a lot about, uh, well, first of all, Ellen Lewin's study of lesbian mothers, who, uh, which was conducted in the States in sort of the 80s, 90s, um, where a lot of women were talking about having to really perform this straight feminine motherhood because similar morality clauses to what are brought up in the film were still applicable at that time and could have resulted in the loss of their children. And I absolutely have uh, worked with people in my research who have had similar things come up in custody battles where they've like shown me photos of themselves during the time that they were 
um, engaged in these custody battles and they, they'll say to me, oh, like, look at my hair. It was so long. I just completely lost myself because I was trying to look like this perfect mother to the court. Uh, so, you know, like there's some relatable content in here for, for femmes today. And, but that said, you know, Carol's femininity does extend beyond uh, her motherhood and, and her status as a mother and attempts to retain access to her child. Uh, my my kind of initial pr- impression of Carol is just like absolutely femme top, and that could be because I have a thing for Kate Blanchett. We'll never know, as we all do. Uh, <laughs> but she really she really does take this very um, initiating role in her relationship with um, Rooney Mara's character. She's the one who kind of pursues her and who is dominant in a lot of ways. Uh, and that that's also, you know, an age thing because she's older and more experienced and richer mm. as well. Uh, so there's, there's all those other factors, but just in terms of the, like, intense sexual tension between those two characters, it's really Carol who's got the toppy vibes. And... Um, the the whole idea of a femme top is, I think, quite prevalent and acceptable nowadays, um, particularly in the social circles that I work with. But in the early 2000s in Sydney, it was actually a bit of an uphill battle for people to sort of dispel the correlation between femininity and submission. Uh, so even from sort of 2008, you know, there's there's pictures of people doing like little activist posters and photo shoots and things that literally they literally have signs being like femme does not equal bottom femme does not equal sub uh so it's quite interesting i think to see this really toppy femme in this 1950s movie especially because a lot of those ideas about femme as submissive um are drawn out of butch femme culture from that time when butchers really were or at least according to the accounts that I've read were taking those initiating roles and there's there's a really lovely scene where um Rooney Mara's character is buying a record and um looks up and sees these two women kind of flirting or you know like they're having kind of an intimate conversation and they're very clearly coded as a butch femme couple um which you know, and we see, we get to see her sort of very curious, intrigued reaction to seeing this. So at this time when butch femme bar culture was a real thing and it was fairly conventional for femmes to be kind of on the receptive end of um, courting or dating or whatever we want to call it, uh, there's this story of um, these two women who really don't fit into those categories and I think that one of the reasons that they don't fit into those character categories is actually because Carol is from a certain class background where butch femme wasn't as prevalent. So, yeah, she's doing this very classed femininity that also makes Rooney Mara's character look perhaps a bit more like a tomboy, um, whether that is actually the expression or it's simply just 
again, a classed thing, um, that's a bit harder to necessarily draw out. I also think that much like the Annalise Keating character, the Carol character shows a lot of the excess and polish and balance of sort of power and vulnerability that I've been talking about as often signaling or being used to signal femme or queer femininity um, in my experiences of my research. The other thing that she does that really resonates with some of my observations is kind of pushing against some of the gendered norms of the time. Uh, One of my, I really enjoy the scene where she turns up to this Christmas party in kind of like a suit or just more, I don't know if we call it casual clothing, but all the other women there are in these very fancy like ball dresses, um, there's gloves, there's jewellery, there's updos, and Carol's in this kind of grey, very fitted outfit um, and even comments to Sarah Paulson's character on the drive over, like, oh, God, you know, they're going to, like, my husband and my mother-in-law are going to die when they see me turn up in this. And that really made me think about um, something that a participant once told me, which was that for her, femme is a sense of always being on the outside, even when you're in. So we're seeing Carol kind of being in, she's in the party, but she's not the same femininity. She's not doing the same femininity as all the other women there. But she's definitely not doing masculinity either. That idea of Carol being a femtop is really interesting when you think about, like, not just what, um, you know, she authentically feels her gender expression should be or, you know, maybe even her finding um, an in-between space between what she wants to be and what society wants her to be and what the court wants her to be and all that kind of stuff. But also as, like living in a time where she wants to date and navigating that space and also, you know, trying to fit in comfortably with all of these different narratives that sometimes feel like they're contradictory when you look at kind of the the dominant narratives of, of our culture and like dating scenes can be hard. (laughs) And if you're femme dating scenes involve coming out over and over and over again uh, you know, it's a huge issue for femme queer women. It's also a huge issue for butch trans women, uh, among other identities as well. But those are kind of the two that come to my mind immediately as these two people who feel like uh, often they might need to dial back some of what they feel their gender expression would be authentically um, if it means that people are uh, understanding their sexuality or gender identity uh, a little bit more correctly to how they feel it. Yeah, again. I read Carol as a femme because of the way that that character resonates with what I see in my field. But whether she was intended to be a femme um, is an entirely different thing. And one of the things that comes up for a lot of my participants is that, and again, less and less the case these days, but there was a time when femmes would get a lot of critique for being straight passing, for sort of not having the visibility that queer people of other gender expressions had. And femmes often, although not always, do have an ability to kind of get through certain situations um, because they need to appear straight or it's easier that they're red straight. Um, that, of course, comes with 
the sort of flip side of this constant coming out, this constant alerting people to who you are. And that, that really depends on how important it is to the individual to be read correctly. Um, but as I reflect on what's important to my participants, that is something that's very important to my participants. And in the case of Carol, it's hard to say how strongly that character is trying to signal her intentions towards Therese because obviously, um, you know, all, all the very excited sort of queer watchers are kind of eagerly anticipating and aware that like this is not a glove lunch. This is a this is not a lunch to return your gloves. This is a like deep flirtation. Um, so whether I'm reading that in or the film is like, Therese doesn't really know what's going on kind of thing. Like that's that's hard to say. But it is a lot of when we take clear queer signifiers out, femmes do a lot of work around looks and body language and taking up space and tones of voice that signal queerness and and particularly interest in non-men that Kate Blanchett does brilliantly. <laughs> um, I cannot recommend enough uh, a particular autostraddle article that has gifts of every look that Kate Blanchett shoots Rooney Mara in the film. It's absolutely worth your time. It's not procrastinating. It's important. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Catherine, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your insights. It's been really interesting learning about manifestations of femmes, femininities and queerness in the L word, how to get away with murder and Carol. Thank you so much for having me. It's been wonderful. If you're a fan of Trope Watchers, check out our sister podcast, A Clash of Critics, your scholarly podcast about Game of Thrones and A Song of Ice and Fire. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate us on iTunes. It helps others find our podcast. You can find this episode and all future episodes on iTunes and Stitcher. Also, check out our website, www.tropewatchers.com, for all episodes, extra content, or to download an RSS feed. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash tropewatchers. And you can tweet at us or follow us on Instagram at tropewatchers. You can also email us at tropewatchers at gmail.com. Until next time, I'm Scott. And I'm Mia, and we are your tropewatchers. Watchers.